I just got a notification on my watch saying you're in an environment that is probably a little bit too loud. Um, and I got to say, I, I love being here. Shut up, Siri. Um, I love being here to hear our church family sing together. Like there's something about hearing, even if you walk in this place, you don't feel it. Like, God, I'm struggling with some stuff right now. To, to be around a community of people who are saying, I trust in God, or you are a way maker, being in a community of people who have seen that, is just an encouragement to those of us who are in a hard season right now. So thank you for singing loud enough to make Siri respond <laughs> to it this morning. Hey, if we haven't uh, met before, my name is Dan. I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors alongside uh, Jason Phillips, who's our campus life pastor. We're just so grateful that you are here with us today. Uh, and if this is your first time at LifePoint, or maybe the last couple weeks you've been checking us out from a distance, trying to see like, hey, is this a, is this a, a group I can run with? This is, is this a place I can uh, fit into? And you're ready to take a next step. One of the easiest ways to just find a bit more about uh, this this community or, or to take a next step to meet with either myself or Jason or one of our other leaders is to take out your phone and you can uh, scan that QR code that's on the seat right in front of you. That's going to bring you to a landing page where you'll see a couple different things. One of those is notes. You can follow along on uh, the notes from the messages there. You'll also see a new guest card. So if you are new today, this is the one thing we'd ask of you that you take a moment uh, either now or after service to scan that new card uh, and fill that out. Just gives us a little information about you. We'd love to connect with you later on in the week. Uh, and we'll also be uh, making a $5 donation to one of our partner ministries around here in your honor, just as a way of saying thank you for being here today. One of the other things you're going to see on that landing page uh, is a, a giving page. Now, I want to take a moment just to unpack what this giving thing is all about for us in, in the life of the local church. I've, I said this uh, maybe two weeks ago, but one of the interesting things that has happened uh, in the modern era of the church is that so many of us, uh, when we come prepared to, to give and uh, practice generosity in our community, the way that we do that is online, right? We give online, maybe we even set it up with our bank accounts so it kind of automatically uh, gets deducted from our paycheck goes into uh, our offering moment with whatever local church we're tied to at the moment. And, and that is very convenient. I'm not knocking anybody who does it. I do that. Here's the thing that that does for me, though. I almost never see that, and I almost never feel it happen. Right? There's something actually very powerful about a church community coming together and saying, hey, God has called us as a community to practice generosity together. Uh, and we acknowledge that the Lord provides for what uh, we are doing in the life of our church, in the community, and across the world. He gets to do that together. And we, a, a, as a church, we want to pause and just say thank you uh, for giving regularly to this local church. Uh, if you've been a part of LifePoint for a while, giving has, may, maybe giving has been online for you. One of the practical things you may need to do if you're saying, hey, LifePoint Worthington, this is my home campus. This is, where, this is the crew I'm running with. This is where we're getting after stuff together. Uh, you will need to change your giving designation from another campus to the LifePoint Worthington campus in order for us to, uh, to your uh, offering to go here uh, and impact what we're doing here in this community. The second thing you're going to see on that landing page is that we have uh, something called Season 20 uh, that you can also give to. Season 20 is uh, us acknowledging, hey, as a church family across all of LifePoint, uh, we are stepping into our 20th year, uh, which is something to, to, to really celebrate. Like, God has been faithful uh, for the last 20 years to LifePoint, and over the next year, we want to be very strategic about how we use our resources uh, to continue not just growing for 
our namesake, but seeing greater kingdom impact in and through the ministry at LifePoint. Uh, and so if you are saying, hey, uh, I would love to give to a part of that. I'd love to give to season 20 as a year-end gift above and beyond uh, normal giving. You can designate that on the landing page for season 20. We're going to be talking about this over the next couple weeks just to give more uh, transparency into what that, those funds are going to and what we are getting after uh, here in this community. Let me remind you that our vision for this campus is we want to uh, see 1% of the city of Worthington connected in authentic community here at LifePoint Worthington. And what I mean by that, like I, I think we, I, by God's grace we want to be bigger than 1%, which is 140 people, but we want to be a part of seeing 140 people in Worthington who are not currently not followers of Jesus hear the gospel, repent, believe, and become followers of Jesus to find life the way it's truly meant to be lived in Jesus uh, through the ministry here at LifePoint. That's, that's what we are chasing after. That's gonna take a long time. And so when you give, it gives to more efforts to see the gospel go forward in our community and beyond. All right, now if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel. We're gonna be continuing in our series, uh, Daniel chapter four, continuing in our series called Exiles, where we have followed God's people uh, being removed from their homeland and learning that faith is more about how you live than where you live. For us, Daniel shows us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world and culture that doesn't. Right, that's what we're seeing over and over again. If you missed any of the messages in this series, I'd encourage you to go back to our website and listen to some of them because they provide a ton of context for what we've been talking about. We've, we've been trying to thread a needle through this series. Those of you uh, who have been here for all of them know this already. The, the question we've been trying to address in each one of these messages is how do we live faithfully here and now? Right, I said it this way. How do we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. And so far, like I said in week one, the reason this is so challenging for us is because we are a wavering people. We waver back and forth on what we want to do and the way that God has called us to live. You might remember, I look like an idiot standing on one of those teeter-totters up here week one saying, we waver back and forth. Week two, uh, we, we said that uh, another challenge is, as followers of Jesus, we need to be honest with ourselves. We, we are so quick to point the finger and say, hey, there's something wrong with the world around us, and very slow to say, hey, th there's something actually wrong uh, deeply inside of me, right? We looked at uh, God who is the great revealer, who reveals even those things we would rather keep hidden from everybody else in the face of the earth, and yet what we find in the gospel is the stunning reality uh, that while we are worse than we could have imagined, we are more loved than we could possibly dream in the gospel. Last week, we said that we need to follow Daniel's three friends uh, who, who engage in this uh, practice of recognizing, rejecting, and replacing the idols of their hearts, minds, and culture around them. And today, we get to the final piece of a puzzle uh, as we're asking, how do we live like Daniel? How do we live faithfully and follow Jesus in a world that doesn't? And I will say this from the beginning. This passage is fascinating, we could go down a thousand different rabbit trails, uh, and I'm happy to sit down over coffee and, and explore every single one of them with you, uh, but I, I'm gonna do my best to keep us laser focused today on the main idea of this passage, because I think when we really see, and not just say we see it, and really believe, and not just say we believe it, uh, what this passage uh, is talking about, it's gonna change everything. 
Change everything about the way we live and engage in the world around us. So if you're not there yet, Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter four. And while you're uh, turning there in your Bibles, uh, last year, last year, last January actually, Simone Angles saw something that she shouldn't have seen. Let me show you a picture she snapped. She was a photographer in uh, um, Vancouver on the far west side of uh, Canada, and she saw this enormous iceberg floating in from a distance. Now, this was odd for several reasons. Uh, she was a pr- fairly well-known photographer, so she snapped this picture and wanted to send it to the na- major like news agencies to say, hey, FYI, there is this enormous chunk of ice floating to our city. We should probably tell people about it. Um, and she was amazed that no one else was talking about it because this iceberg would have had to navigate some pretty narrow channels in order to get to where she saw Uh, So it didn't make sense what she was seeing. She snapped a picture of it, posted it online, and the iceberg vanished. So she thought she was crazy uh, and uh, started to ask more questions about what, you know, what is this? What happened? And what people eventually realized is she was not seeing an iceberg and she wasn't crazy. What she had captured a picture of was a mountain range 125 miles away. Yeah. Now, some of you are thinking, that's that's not possible. Yes, I know. (laughs) It's pretty wild. What this is called is a superior mirage. A superior mirage. And and this is different from a normal mirage. When we hear the word mirage, we think of uh, someone walking through the desert who sees a body of water out in the distance only to find that it's not a body of water at all, right? It's just an optical illusion. A superior mirage is different in that it shows you something, not that, that doesn't exist, it shows you something that actually does exist but is so often way beyond your ability to actually see it. But the normal human eye can see, the, the naked human eye can see about three miles with any clarity into uh, the distance. At 11 miles, you're dealing with the curvature of the earth, so you can't see anything over that anyway. Right? But this superior mirage through different like heat waves and things like that is able to take an image that is hundreds of miles away and pull it up uh, to show you what is actually there, but out of sight. And what we need, friends, as we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't, is a superior mirage. We need a superior mirage. The reason I bring that up is because we need to be able to see as followers of Jesus by what, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, what we should not be able to see on a regular basis. This is what we need today. We need a superior mirage to see what is there, but often hidden. And the thing that Daniel shows us, the the very reality that Daniel himself sees, the superior mirage that he sees and believes is this, that the Lord reigns over every kingdom of man. In fact, if you want to write down a big idea from the message today, it's just that the Lord reigns over every kingdom of man. And this, friends, is far more than just a nice sentiment that I can say up here from, uh, you know, within a church on a Sunday morning, but this is something that we desperately need to see. We desperately need to believe in order to make sense of following Jesus in a world that doesn't. So this is what we're exploring today, that the Lord reigns over the kingdom of men. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we are so grateful this morning that we get to be here in this place. God, we ask that you would speak to us powerfully by your word, that you would do more than just challenge our thinking, change our hearts. 
And long after we leave this place, Lord, we pray that you would continue to preach to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to see the superior mirage, what is actually there, but, but often clouded from our vision. Help us to see you as the one who truly reigns over all things. And the magnitude even of that statement makes it feel superficial. Yet, Lord, you are over all. Confront us with that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get started. Look with me at chapter four, verse one. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Chapter four uh, in Daniel is fascinating. It kicks off with this proclamation from King Nebuchadnezzar himself to his entire empire about, uh, about the God of Daniel and his three friends. This is really similar to uh, some other proclamations that we see in the Old Testament where a king would send a message to everybody uh, around him in his empire. Remember what we saw last week though. Daniel, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were thrown into a fiery furnace uh, because for refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar as God. Right? They find themselves in the, the furnace. They'd, uh, they, they are, uh, he's trying to kill them for, for this, and yet God miraculously preserves them in the fire. There's a fourth man who rescues them from the fire. And this is part of Nebuchadnezzar's response to what he has just seen. He is floored by what he has uh, seen happen. In fact, much of the rest of the chapter, Daniel chapter 4, is written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Now, one of the questions that comes up from a passage like this uh, is, you know, what, what actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Like, was he converted? Is he a believer in uh, the God of uh, Daniel and his friends or the, the God of the Old Testament? Is he, is, is he a true believer? All right now, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, but what I think is going on here, and we'll, we'll move on from this in a moment, but I think what's going on here is that Nebuchadnezzar uh, does believe that their God is a real God. Right? But, but, but he, is, he is still convinced that, he is, that uh, Yahweh, or Most High God, is one of many real gods, even if he is more powerful than the other Babylonian gods. I'm not, not sure genuine, or there's a genuine change of heart here on Nebuchadnezzar's uh, perspective. But what's fascinating about this chapter, uh, as you keep reading, is that it's like, why is so much of it written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective? Look at verse 4. A great example of it. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace, and he'll go on for another 20 or so verses talking about his own, uh, you know, his own dream. We'll see that in a second. And, and to me, that's really odd. In fact, it, it's, it's more than a little odd. I mean, I mean, imagine for a moment what that would have been like for Daniel's original audience. Remember, there's a Jewish audience he's writing to. I mean, 
I mean, they, they were the ones who would have experienced some of the most horrific atrocities recorded in the Bible. Every single one of them would have had family and friends mercilessly slaughtered uh, by the Babylonians under the direct order of King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the, uh, through the remainder of the biblical storyline, all the way through the book of Revelation, Babylon is consistently talked about as the anti-kingdom of God. It stands for the opposite of all that God is about. Babylon is evil. It's unjust. It is horrifically cruel. So why on earth do we have an entire chapter of the Bible written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective? This would be like finding out today that some major portion of U.S. policy was written and first articulated by uh, Hitler. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't work. Something feels wrong there. Do you feel that? It's, it's odd. I want you to hold on to that feeling uh, for a moment as we work through the story here. I want you to keep feeling that like, uh, dissonance there between like, Nebuchadnezzar as this evil character. Like, why, why does he get the mic for a second to give us his perspective? Look again at verse four. Nebuchadnezzar tells us that he's had another dream. Uh, and just like the dream we saw in chapter two, it's a dream uh, that he sure means something. He just can't figure out exactly what it means. So he gets Daniel to interpret the dream for him again. Look at verse 10. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of all the field uh, found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was, fre- uh, was fed from it. Now, now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have an issue with the first part of this dream, right? It actually sounds kind of nice for uh, the king. The issue is with what he sees next. Verse 13. I saw in the vision of my head as I laid in my bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, uh, to to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now we read that, we may hear that, and and it's almost like, how could Nebuchadnezzar possibly be confused at what this dream means? Like he's obviously talking about him, right? It's just like the last dream. This is obviously talking about him. It's talking about his kingdom, his fall, and what's gonna happen to him. And even Daniel's a little hesitant to respond to the king when the king's like, hey, Daniel, what, you know, what do you think about this? What's it talking about? And Daniel's like, uh, you? <laughs> obviously, it's talking about you. Look at verse 19. Uses Daniel's Babylonian name, Belshazzar. Um, but, but he is at a loss for what to do, how to respond to the king. 
which is exactly how any of us would be in that moment. He is the most powerful person on earth at the moment, describing a dream that is pretty obviously talking about his demise and the demise of his empire. And Daniel's job is to say, uh, bro, it's talking about you. The interpretation of the dream that we see next confirms a couple things that Nebuchadnezzar is, in fact, at the top of the food chain. There is no other empire on earth like his. Historically, we know this. Uh, up, up until the time of the, the Persian Empire, the Greek, and then Roman Empire, there is nothing that uh, rivals the Babylonian Empire. In a sense, he, he has arrived at the top of the ladder. There is no more room for him to go. He has made it. He is top dog. He is the boss. And yet it's all about to be taken away. He's about to lose everything. That's, that's what the dream means. And Daniel can only offer a small bit of counsel. In uh, verse 27, he says that the king should turn from his way of life. He should pursue righteousness and, and, and show mercy. And at that point, maybe the, uh, the, the reality of this dream would be delayed. But it's going to happen. And we don't know how much weight Daniel's words had with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but it certainly doesn't sink in for the long run. Look at verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, or the, in the original language it said, he said to himself, is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, a, a temple, for the glory of my majesty. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, he's looking over his entire empire. Nebuchadnezzar is enamored with himself and his power. He's so used to being at the top that all he can do is look down, and, and he is in love with what he sees as, as uh, his power, his glory, and his majesty. I, I think it's interesting that he uses the very words that throughout the rest of the Bible are attributed to God and God alone. And now Nebuchadnezzar takes these words on himself and say, hey, the power, glory, uh, majesty, these define me. In essence, I mean, in this short sentence, he declares himself to be a god. And before he's finished articulating this, everything changes. Everything changes. Look at verse 33. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven out from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's a very strange turn of events. Um, and, you know, if you, if you open up a commentary or, you know, a, a, like modern interpretation of, of a story like this, you'll find people who try and uh, analyze what actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And we tend to define it in our modern context in terms of a mental disorder or a, a psychosis that Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing. And there are things that seem, you know, fairly parallel. But I think what's actually happening here uh, is tied far more to these ancient biblical themes of arrogance and humiliation. It's interesting. There's this weird turn that, that we kind of miss because most of us are not familiar with ancient Babylonian culture. I could be wrong. 
but most of us are not. Um, the Babylonians were famous for their worship and adoration of these mythic beasts. In fact, uh, if you were to travel to the second greatest city on earth, which is the city of Chicago, you can go to the University of Chicago, uh, and in the museum there, they have one of the largest collections of Babylonian artifacts. You can just go and see, and uh, it, it, it's incredible. They have these enormous statues and pillars of these giant, like, they, they, they kind of look like cows, but with the head of a king on them. They're all over the place. It's all over their artwork and their architecture. And these are depictions of the Babylonian gods. Well, what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar has actually become exactly what he asked for. I mean, he stands on top of his empire and he looks out and says, this is all for my glory. This is all for my majesty, for my power. He makes himself equal to God. And what happens is he actually becomes just like one of the Babylonian gods. And the ironic twist here is now that he is like the Babylonian gods, he uh, takes the, God, you know, God takes the most powerful, most influential person on earth at the moment, grants his wish, and now he has the personality of a cow. See how that flips exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted on its head? I want you to think about what I said uh, for a moment earlier when, when I said that we need to feel how odd and out of place this story feels, even wrong, that for, for, for this whole section to be written and recorded for us by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Like there's just something off about an individual who represents so much evil and brokenness to be given the microphone for a second. And it feels weird and God, if it's weird for us, how much more would it have felt wrong for Daniel's original audience? But here's what I think is going on here. Here's what I think, it's helpful to think about it this way. Nebuchadnezzar, like narrating this portion, this, this is his Jacob Marley moment. Okay, some of you are laughing, you get this. This is Jacob Marley moment. And with that comment, we've now entered into the uh, time of year where I can officially reference Christmas uh, in our services. Everybody talks about Christmas festivities kicking off, you know, when it first snows or after Thanksgiving. Those are both wrong answers. Uh, Official start of Christmas is when your pastor starts talking about it in his sermons, okay? (laughs) Listen, it is an undeniable universal truth that the best Christmas story outside of the Bible, I have to say that, uh, is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, specifically the virgin told by Jim Henson in A Muppet's Christmas, okay? A Muppet's Christmas Carol is the best. You remember the story, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by how many ghosts? No, four. And if you watch The Muppet's Christmas, it's five. They split up Jacob Marley into two characters, those two old men, Jacob and Robert Marley. Bob Marley, one of the many reasons why that movie is the best, okay? (laughs) Visited by four ghosts. The first one is his old business partner, Jacob Marley, right, who, who he recounts his life to Scrooge, everything that he did, why he did it, and the result of what he did. Jacob Marley is beyond help himself. It's too late for him, but he is speaking so that Scrooge can change. Right, so that he can think and act and live differently. You see, this is exactly what is going on in here with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, in, in a sense, is being used to show us what he was unable to see and unable to believe himself, that, 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 that the king of the universe 
you know, as Nebuchadnezzar calls himself, was completely and unilaterally dismantled in a matter of moments by the one who is actually in charge. In fact, the entire point of this story uh, is recorded through the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar as he's recounting his dream to Daniel. Look at verse 17 again. The whole point right here. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. Did you see that? That, That's the superior mirage that, that is so often out of sight for you and me, that the living may know that you and I here now, as we seek to live faithfully and follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow uh, Jesus, that we would know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men, that of all the nations of the earth, of all the power structures in place over each and every person of power, president, prime minister, king, there stands one who is actually the mayor of mayors. There is a governor of governors. There is a prime minister of prime ministers. There is a president of presidents. There is a king of kings and a lord of lords. There's a creator of all things who holds the very universe together by the mere word of his power. He is the most high who rules and reigns over the kingdoms and structures that we find ourselves under every moment of every day. That is a stunning reality. And do you see why I say this is a superior mirage? Because it's one thing for us to uh, sit here today and be like, yeah, that's right. And then Sunday afternoon hits. We got a whole host of things we're wrestling through as we gear up for the work or, uh, you know, we're like, Lord Jesus, please reign over the conversation of the Thanksgiving dinner table. Because we go back into the kingdoms of men and we live the rest of our lives there. And we lose sight of the reality that's really there, but so often out of sight. You see, I think at the end of the day, we are far more like Nebuchadnezzar than we'd like to admit. Remember, his actual downfall takes place at his height. Right, a year after this dream, he is standing, he's overlooking his entire empire. He, I mean, he is at the top, he cannot get any higher. Looks down and falling in love with his own accomplishments, his own abilities, with what he's convinced he's been able to do for himself. And I think we can read the story and, and think, what a fool. And yet how often do we find ourselves caught in our own reflection, laser focused on ourselves and what we bring to the table. See, there's at least two ways that I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar's response profoundly uh, influences us, the way that we respond just like Nebuchadnezzar. And it shapes us. You see, uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, when, when we only look down, when we only look down, we fail to remember that there is someone above us. We fail to remember there's someone above us. We miss out on the, the comfort of recognizing that there is one who is ultimately over us, who knows us, who hears us, who, who knows what we need before we even open up our mouths to ask. 
You might ask, okay, what difference does that make? Let me say it this way. How many of you, how many of you, if, if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, you know that you know that you know the result of the big game next week. You knew that your team was gonna beat that team up north. I'm picking up on Columbus lingo, right? Up north, yeah. You knew your team was gonna win. How's that change the way you kind of show up the rest of the week, even in little things? You don't have to admit it. Anybody anxious? You don't have to admit it. I have a family, I come from a, a family, I'm married into a family that likes two teams, Michigan and Georgia, okay? That text thread is gonna be nuts next week. How many of you would, you, you, you're, you're you don't wanna admit it, but your week's gonna be a lot different if you know your team's gonna win, right? You don't, you gotta, you're not anxious about it, you're not anxious about, you know, you sit and enjoy the game. then how much more, if that's true, how much more does it change the entire way we process uh, even the daily moments in life when we are able to see what is so often unseen, when we are able to see and know there is one who reigns over the, the kingdoms of men. I'll tell you what, Courtney and I, uh, we, we are coming out of an incredibly challenging season incredibly challenging season. And some of you have your own things going on. You know what it's like to walk through the valley, the shadow of death. You might be there right now. How different is it to walk through that valley when you know my shepherd is with me? There's one who is over this of what I'm experiencing right now. You, you suffer differently when you know there is one who reigns over, who knows, sees, and hears you. The second way this story shapes us, right, is, is because it reveals, uh, as we, we say, hey, we're, we're more like Nebuchadnezzar than we think, it reveals how closely we can get sucked into our own kingdoms and actually enslaved by our own kingdoms that we set up. I'll give you another example. I, I, I struggle with this all the time, and it's, it's in the, like, the dumbest ways that this plays out in my life. You know one of the privileges I have as a, as a pastor? I absolutely love this part of my, uh, my, my calling, is to regularly stand up here and teach the Bible. I love that. It, it is a joy and privilege to do that week in and week out, but, but here's how I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. The, the dirty secret about pastors is they never th- we never think that we preach an okay sermon. No pastor in his own mind has ever preached an okay sermon. When I get home Sunday afternoon, I have one of two responses. The first one is, dang, I nailed that. <laughs> in my heart of hearts, I crushed that. I crushed that. Gosh, the people are lucky to have me there. Amen. <laughs> I just hope I can keep the creative juices flowing for next week. I have to top that one next week and the week after that and every positive comment that I get, they're well-meaning. Every positive comment I get is uh, slowly feeding something far more sinister inside of me. 
Right, the other response is complete embarrassment. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I uh, sounded like such a fool. I completely missed that. And, and, and at the same time, I'll, I'll check my email. I'll check my texts. I'll, 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 I'll kind of wade into conversations needing someone to say something to me. Why? Because that's when I can finally let myself off the hook, right, and say, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And with every uh, single hour that goes by without some feedback, I am slowly, again, feeding something far more sinister inside of me. And you see, with both responses, what they have in common is that they're both all about me. This is Nebuchadnezzar. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about him. My response there is is about my response to me, and it's about your response to me. And, And while they are on opposite ends of the spectrum, I find myself holding you hostage to my ego. Who does that? Well, I mean, one of the, I, I can say that because I know y'all do it all the time too. Every single one of us struggles with this. How often if we probe the deep root causes of our own frustration at work or with a spouse or with a, with a parent or with a friendship or with, with an adult child growing up, like how often will we find that the root cause of our anger with them and angst with them is really their unwillingness to submit to my way of thinking, but my approach to the situation, if they had just listened to me, they wouldn't be in this mess that they created for themselves. I see, we may not say it out loud. In fact, we, we almost certainly will not. We can look at this idea of Daniel uh, 4, that the most high reigns over the kingdoms of men. I say, yes, true, as long as Daniel is talking about those kingdoms and not this one. And yet this is precisely why we need a superior mirage to see what is so often unseen. I said this last week, that the human heart, we're like a factory of idols. We constantly keep reinventing things to uh, worship. At the end of the day, the idol that we most often create looks just like us. We are constantly uh, calling ourselves forward to worship ourselves and if we can get others to do it for us, all, you know, more the merrier. But this is why we need to see that superior mirage because there is one who reigns and rules over the kingdom of men. He reigns and rules over the kingdoms of men. He reigns and rules over the kingdoms of our hearts and minds. As you see, our, our story is just like Nebuchadnezzar's in that, that we fall, we call other people to worship just like he did, and yet this is where we are also reminded of the stunning hope of the gospel. You see, the gospel puts forward a very different story for us. Well, we think that we will get what we're looking for when, when we are worshiped, like Nebuchadnezzar, when we come to the recognition that we, we are gods, then we will find the satisfaction, the peace, the security that we are looking for in this life. What we don't recognize is that our own kingdoms inevitably end up enslaving us to themselves. They inevitably end up with our demise because our kingdoms do not care about us. Our kingdoms do not love us. The structures we put in place do not give a rip about what happens to us at the end of the day. See, the gospel is very different. 
And the Christian paradigm is uh, remarkably different that says you do not find your ultimate source of satisfaction and joy and peace and comfort in this life when you are uh, who you truly are, when you are your best self, when you are at the top of your game. You find it when you find your place under the one who reigns over the kingdoms of men. When you find your identity, when you find your strength, when you find your joy in the one who reigns over the kingdoms of men. That's why we find our identity not in ourselves, not what we're in. able to do for ourselves, not in who we love or who we're attracted to. We find our identity in Jesus, who is a very different kind of king, who does not conquer by taking our lives. He conquers by giving his life so that we might find true life, take hold of the life that is truly life in Jesus. And by faith in him, what we find is life the way it's meant to be lived. We find everything we think we can manufacture in our own kingdoms and yet are consistently disappointed by. By faith in Jesus, we, we, we take hold of the life that is truly life by, through his death and resurrection in our place for our sin. And friends, this is why we so desperately need that superior mirage because it brings us back to the place over and over again that where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Where we have been enslaved, he brings freedom and the gospel brings us true and new life. On your way in this morning, you should have received one of those communion cups. Um, if I had been better at planning this, I would have grabbed one for myself and I forgot. So if someone wouldn't mind grabbing me one. We got these communion cups. And in a way, as we take communion together, yeah, if you need one, we, we, we have some available at the door. And in a way, We are participating in communion. We we are participating in a much bigger story about who God is and what he's doing in this world. Thanks, man. We're participating in a much bigger story about what God is doing. This is, in a sense, a part of our superior mirage because when we uh, experience the Lord's Supper together, what we are doing is we are getting a foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom where the Lord Jesus reigns fully and completely. And when we take this, this is a tactile way that we say, Lord, we long for that day when you make all things right and all things new. And until that day, uh, we have but a foretaste. We have a superior mirage to see what is really there, but so often out of sight. And so let me say this, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you, you know that uh, you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, this uh, is a meal that I want you to participate in today. But if you're here and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus or maybe for a, a while you, you have uh, been questioning what it means, like who is God, what does following Jesus even look like, we'd actually ask that you not partake today because this meal wouldn't mean for you what it's supposed to mean. I love what the Apostle Paul says, and we're going to take this together all at one time, and we'll get the universal crackle sound out of the way in a moment. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Verse 23, he said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he establishes the fullness of his kingdom. Friends, this is the superior mirage, so let's together take the bread and we eat this, remembering Jesus' body that was nailed to a cross on our behalf. And we take the cup and we remind ourselves of Jesus' blood that washes away the stain of our sin. And, and even as we hear one another opening this up, it's a reminder to us that we are in a room filled with spiritually needy people who are just as much in need of God's grace as the next person. And we take this together saying, Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when you, uh, we see and know the fullness of your rule and reign. Let's take this together. Father, we thank you this morning that we can trust you. We thank you this morning that we can, uh, even for a moment, see the superior mirage, to see uh, what, what is, is really there, truly there, but so often clouded from our own vision, that you reign over the kingdoms of men. You reign over us. And in your goodness to us, you reign over us, for us, for our good, for our thriving. And so as we close today, we proclaim, Lord, that you, you are good. You have been good to us and you continue to be. So we trust you, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.